if you could take one object to space, one object that represents you, that is dear to you, what would that be? Something that will remind me of my father, my mother, and the family, obviously, and the grandkids. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Eitan Stibe, a decorated Israeli Air Force fighter pilot, business leader, philanthropist, and impact investor, who, in January, will become the second Israeli ever to travel into space. A longtime friend of Ilan Ramon, Israel's first astronaut who died in the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster in 2003, Eitan helped establish and remains active in the Ramon Foundation that is a JFN member. During the Lebanon War, Eitan became the only Israel Air Force pilot ever to shoot down four enemy aircraft during a single sortie. After his military service, Stibe joined a team of advisors at Israel Aircraft Industry that founded ELAR, a program that implemented projects and established infrastructures in developing countries. In 2010, Eitan established Vital Capital, which invests in enterprises whose goal is to improve the economic, personal, and social well-being of low- and middle-income communities in developing countries, especially in Africa. Eitan is a member of the World Economic Forum in Geneva, and serves on numerous boards and advisory committees. In our conversation, we talked about his varied career that covers impact investing, the Ramon Foundation, of course, Jewish-Arab relations within Israel. Actually, he and his wife support several social initiatives in the mixed Jewish-Arab city of Lod. And of course, why he's going to outer space and the unexpected similarities between doing philanthropy and piloting a fighter jet. Take a listen. So... Thank you, Eitan, for being with us today. And um, from being a combat pilot to being a business person, to being a philanthropist, to being an astronaut, that's quite a journey, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I'm not <laughs> a young guy. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your journey. Like it starts somewhere in Haifa. Yeah, well, I was born in Haifa. My parents immigrated from Holland after the war in 1953. I was born in Haifa when my father got his scholarship to study for his PhD in the Columbus, Ohio University. We moved to Ohio for three years and I came back to the center to Ramatchen. My father worked in agriculture ministry research center. And my mother was, a, at the time, my mother was a psychological social worker in a, a mental hospital, and we grew up here in the center. And growing up, did you think that you will have any of the social and philanthropic activity that you have today, or it came as a surprise later on in life? I think during the first years, the focus is on uh, getting things done, growing up, finishing school, participating in uh, the Boy Scouts and the uh, Scouts, I would say, in uh, sports activities and uh, 
studying and focusing on reaching uh, results in all these uh, sectors. And then in Israel, uh, you get ready to join the military service. Everyone does. Yeah. So I uh, just went through the screening and testing and then was invited to join the Air Force Academy. And I went through that not knowing exactly what it means. Uh, only during the course, uh, I started understanding what uh, Air Force is, what a pilot is. And I graduated that as a fighter pilot, then served the minimum service of uh, another four years and uh, left the service and continued doing a reserve service in the Air Force until the age of 55. And then from 55 to 60, I continued as, a, a, as an instructor in the Air Force Academy for young fighter pilots like Tom Cruise in Top Gun <laughs> <laughs> so but it's interesting now you became a fighter pilot it was in the 80s right in the 80s yeah I graduated in 78 Skyhawks for one year F4 for one year and uh, F16 for many years since 81 till 2011 Ethan is, is not saying it because he's, he's modest but he was I think the only fighter pilot in Israel to down four enemy planes in a single sortie, right? Over the Beka Valley in Lebanon. Yes. Here's what interests me in a way. You came to the Air Force as a fighter pilot when aviation, with military aviation, was very different than what it is today. Right? You saw the transformation, like piloting a Skyhawk. You know, it's really not the same as, as piloting... Uh, F-35 stealth fighter and the way in which aviation and we understand aviation is not the same as we did yesterday, like dogfights, for example, are very rare today. So I was making a parallel between how aviation changed and how philanthropy changed, because you also came into philanthropy with a very different view than the traditional philanthropy, right? Like, do you make a parallel between the changes in these two industries, like aviation and philanthropy? Well, I think the, the comparison can be that the basis is the same. In order to be a pilot, you have to study the basics, basics right. of aviation, of air combat and all the other missions you have. The basics stay the same. The values are the same. So it doesn't matter if philanthropy changed during the, these decades But the basic values uh, that guide your life are the same. What are the values that brought you to philanthropy? The philanthropic support is required in so many sectors, right. especially in Israel that is a struggling country uh, with its neighbors, which, uh, with its internal social issues, uh, political issues, economic issues. So there's so many needs that we as a family, after a while, decided to make a choice and define which areas we would get more involved in. Naturally, the, the first priority is underserved communities. Also from my work in Africa, I learned the, the important needs of the underserved communities. And we focus a big part of our philanthropy in those communities in Israel. In several sectors, in education, in sports, in healthcare, and infrastructure. Yeah. 
so tell us a little bit about your business life in between, right? Like the army life, the business life and the philanthropy life. So tell us a little bit about your business life. You mentioned you were doing business in Africa, but what was the nature of the business? Um, initially, I was attracted to Africa because uh, the first visit there around the beginning of the 90s, I found how many things they miss and uh, the feeling of what a huge change we can make if we focus on the right things and build infrastructure and assist in uh, uh, giving people a good reason to live. Right. Uh, the confidence, the, the uh, pride of raising a family with economic capability. Many Africans are, are connected to land. They, they love their land, they want to develop it, and they really uh, feel that that is the most important part for the future. We started in uh, infrastructure. The first area that I focused on is the area which was most easy for me, which is aviation and airports and uh, air traffic control. But from there on, I was attracted more to uh, developing energy, uh, agriculture development, most uh, usually bringing Israeli companies, Israeli technologies to solve issues that in Israel we solved not so long ago because right. it was a developing country, bringing those technologies, those uh, working methods to developing countries. How did you, did you overcome the cultural gap coming from Israel and dealing with countries that are very different in culture? And, and I'm asking because we have cultural gaps inside the Jewish community and sometimes the experience of something very far away can teach us how to bridge the gaps between ourselves too. Yes, I think when you come with an open heart and uh, not with solutions, but with uh, open ears and open eyes and learn the communities, those cultures, the desires of those people, which are many times different than ours in developed countries, and then you try to uh, match solutions to their uh, desires, their needs, and, and sometimes suggest some ideas and see how they are accepted in those societies. Sometimes they are neglected or rejected. Sometimes they are adopted. And uh, what I found out that once you answer real needs of the community, they will want you to do more. Because the first thing is to listen and look and then find solutions together with them. Most of our business is in partnership with the local people, local governments, always with the intention that these partnerships will expand. And it's kind of the same philosophy that you apply when working with disadvantaged populations in Israel. You don't dictate the solutions, you, you work with them on a solution, right? Yes, yes, that's true. Especially in, the, I'll give you an example. In the, My wife is involved in mental health. She's right. a psychotherapist. And uh, we saw that the, the underserved communities lack support in, in this sector, in mental health, from different reasons. It's not only that the municipality does not provide enough solutions, but it's also a cultural issue of the communities that are not, they are embarrassed to go and ask for uh, mental assistance. To make uh, mental health more accessible to these communities so that they can overcome the barriers, the mental barriers of going to receive psychological assistance is very important. And what we did is create, for example, in Lod, which is a city in the center of the country, but a very complex city, 
mixed uh, societies. Arab and Jewish, ultra-Orthodox, secular, yeah. Yes, and just a few months ago, it was quite wild in that city. There were... For, for those that don't know, Lod was the epicenter of the riots in, in May 2021 between Arab gangs and Jewish gangs. And so we, we received from the municipality a building, neglected school, abandoned school, and we converted it into a psychological treatment center. Well, first floor is a, an academy for students all over the, from all over the country that come to study psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, in cooperation with uh, Tel Aviv University. And on the, on, the, on the bottom floor are the clinics. So we have clinics where those students will provide psychological treatment, uh, psychotherapy to the local community for free or for very, very symbolic uh, uh, participation. Local community means all the different sectors, right? Arab, Jewish. Ultra-religious, and we have even... Uh, Arabic uh, psychotherapists and even psychoanalysis in Arabic. Wow. It, it must have been tough for you to see what happened in Lod during May, right? Like you were, yes. here you are working in Bridging Gaps and you see everything fell apart. So how did you feel and how did you overcome the feeling of despondency, right? Yes, it was uh, embarrassing to see what was happening. But uh, the, when you know the, the city, you understand that that there are problems there. The development is not equal in all, for all sectors. Some right. get more resources, some get less. But what I was very happy is that none of the riots reached our center, which is called the Adam Campus. It was not touched, never violated, never broken into. It's really a place where all communities feel they need the center. They don't right. want to hurt it. Right. And, and I think that one of the things that I, I talk a lot is that everybody heard about the riot, but nobody heard about the work that folks like you and many others are doing to heal, you know, and to bring the communities together. And that's a much bigger story, I think, in the long term. So tell me, tell me more about, I mean, you're involved in many, in many initiatives. So tell me the one that besides this one in Lod, the one that now excites you more? Okay, the second uh, strategy we have is to reach uh, the young generation, I mean, uh, in the age of students, through academies, through the universities, to open their eyes to developing countries. Mm -hmm. So we support several programs in uh, Ben-Gurion, we support the Center for African Studies, in the Hebrew University, a, a master degree, which is called GLOCAL, which is building communities in developing countries. And in Haifa University, a, a master degree for child de early child development. And in the, with Bezalel and Shenkal and Sapir, we do a lot of work where either students or professors will go to Africa and students and professors from uh, African universities uh, come and study here and teach here. For example, the uh, Uganda University of Makarere, they send professors in art to teach here. Right. In different sectors in ceramics and uh, textiles. And, and uh, we bring students, we sponsor students to come and study here from African yeah. countries. 
the listeners can't can see this, but I'm seeing I'm seeing you on Zoom now, and I see beautiful African art in the background. So <laughs> that's true. We dedicated uh, about fifty percent of our office to be a gallery for African art, not commercial gallery. The exhibitions uh, change here every three months in different areas. Uh, sometimes it's traditional, tribal art. Sometimes it's a uh, contemporary modern artists and usually we make a cooperation we arrange cooperation between a, an African artist and an Israeli artist so they work together or they help each other and create a, a joint exhibition and that is always exciting you never know what will be and <laughs> it's much better than expected yeah I always say ask you know Eden Reichel what it is when you mix <laughs> Yeah. Israeli art and African art it's beautiful in his case it's music but in your case it's you know visual arts and it's beautiful too so just add to that yeah. for us it's important to expose the humanities students to the potential of working in developing countries right the, the others usually try to reach an exit in Silicon Valley or get involved <laughs> in the high-tech reach an exit somehow and The potential of the humanities, arts, social studies is huge. What we can contribute from our experience in Israel to developing yes. countries. And needless to say, from the point of view of diplomacy and you know public relations for Israel, it's, it's priceless. Like all these people come back with a, I assume, with a love of Israel and an understanding of of Israel. But you said some people want to make an exit. Some people want to do good. You're working on impact investing, which is in fact a way of doing both. In other words, yes. doing well for yourself and also doing good in the world. You know, what, what brought you to that world and how you operate there? That's, a, that's correct. Well, after many years of working in Africa, we found that the biggest lack of interest is investments. We find many investments in Africa in the areas of oil and gas, natural resources, maybe telecom, but none in the essential sectors. Very few investments came into the essential sectors like health care, agriculture, water purification, and other local, very local infrastructures. So we designed over 10 years ago a strategy that, Of impact investing it was just uh, starting then now it's becoming more and more popular which uh, basically focuses on on doing good for profit so in order to attract investments to Africa it has to be profitable and the idea is that if because of the high risks that if the investment goes bad then at least the good things are, are done right. uh, left behind. So the first and most important aspect of impact investing is that it is intentional. It's not right. a product of an investment. Okay, we'll invest in the water and donate to kindergarten. No, the basis of the investment must prove to be intentionally good for the society, improving it's, the life. It, it, it's what they call the double bottom line. Right? The bottom line is not, is not financial only, but it's also in terms of impact that it does in the thing. That's true. And I'll add one more thing. It must be measurable too. So we define, when we screen the investments, we define what we're going to measure. 
How much must a, a lady walk to, to access water? What is the distance to school? Level of diseases? Income levels? We can measure outputs. How many houses were provided? How many kilos of animal feed were produced? How many eggs were distributed to the market? And we also measure outcomes. Like long-term outcomes, which is the most important, really. Exactly. So to see what happens in the long term. Right. If, the, if there is a real change in the community, if the level of education raises, if the level of income raises. So both measurable outputs and outcomes for and, a long period. And a lot of philanthropy actually fails because people don't know the difference between outputs and outcomes in all fields, even in, in the Jewish community here in the U.S. Like people would tell you, okay, I send 200 kids to camp, to Jewish summer camp, fine. But then you're not telling me what happened to the community because these 200 kids went to camp. And that's ultimately the, the measure that you, that you want over time. People need to have patience and need to, have, need to be in it for the long term for that. That's very interesting because... We are now uh, adopting the principles of impact investing to our philanthropy. We issue a questionnaire to these uh, organizations who ask for support, and we want to see not only that they donate, like you mentioned, but okay, how do you measure the success? What are right. your expectations? It's not the amount of money that went to a hospital, but how did it make a change? And then also, like, in order to do that, you as a philanthropist need to be very clear about your long-term goals, right? Yes. Because you can't measure what you don't know. If you didn't define your goals, you can't measure it. It serves everybody. It serves the nonprofit because it focuses them, but it's also served the philanthropist because it focuses you too. That's accurate. I'll give you two other examples which uh, relate to scale. Because mm -hmm. you can uh, in donate to a small community or you can try and influence a larger population. And here we have two uh, wonderful examples. One is uh, Zikaron Basalon, Memory in the Living Room. Which is a beautiful program. Tell us a little bit about it. I know it, but the listeners may not. So the, uh, the idea is to change the focus of the uh, Memorial Day for the Holocaust from we are victims and therefore we should get the state and we should get compensated and we suffered and everything to a different mindset, which is anti-racism, empathy to the different and, and uh, getting to know other communities. And I'll give you an example uh, about this uh, mindset. Our Holocaust Museum is about our Holocaust. While if you visit Rwanda, Kigali, yeah. and go to uh, their Museum of Holocaust, where half a million people were slaughtered in a month or two, They have their own floor and they have dedicated rooms for the Holocaust of the Armenian, of the Cambodian, of the Jews. They present and they discuss this issue of racism and the, the risk that this, this racism can rise in any community. Right. It can rise in a very educated community like Germany in the last century and it can in a very poor community in other like countries. Wanda. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one example of a, yeah. a widespread philanthropy. I think this year, over one million people participated in this initiative. Wow. All over the world. And this is very impressive. And the second uh, initiative is uh, changing the 
the strategy of the Ministry of Education through the public schools. Instead of having sectors, religious education, education for the blind, education for the uh, disabled, and education for secular, is to create schools where at least 25% of the students in every class are different. They can be ultra-religious, they can be disabled. That's, that's, a major, that's a major change, right? Because Israel, for those that don't know, Israel functions with separate educational systems. There's a Haredi educational system, there is a secular educational system, there is a modern Orthodox, a Zionist Orthodox, and there's an Arab educational system. Exactly. And what you're saying is, let's try to break that and let's try to make one system in which it's a diverse system rather than a separated one. So instead of uh, creating a private school which uh, implements a strategy, we chose to go through the Ministry of Education, persuade them to allow this strategy to be adopted to the first round was with five schools. And now we're adding on eight schools. And I believe this will go all over the country to hundreds of schools. And this will change not only the children that are studying there, but the whole education system will change. The teachers, the parents of the kids. It's a very wide impact on society. If we shift gears a little bit now and go to a little bit to, to memory alley, you knew Israeli first astronaut Ilan Ramon. He was your commander, right? In the squadron. What do you most remember of him? He was a very modest, friendly, even that he was a commander. He was just like any one of the pilots and created the uh, team work through a joint appreciation where each one of the pilots can uh, contribute to the success of the team. His qualities while most of, at that time, most of the Air Force was uh, very competitive. So uh, right. pilots would go against each other. I think that was the, the biggest virtue of Elon that I experienced. I met him before. I met him in 81 when I joined the F-16 squadron. But we, came, we became friends when he uh, was appointed in, the, in 90, 1990. He was appointed the commander of squadron 117. I was already a reserve pilot there. I left the service in 84, and uh, there we became friends, and we stayed friends with the families, with the kids. We were neighbors for a while. And now you're, you're trying to keep his memory alive and that of his family uh, through the Ramon Foundation, right? They're doing some work there. Yes. So while he was uh, training for, the, for his space mission, I visited him several times in Houston, and my wife and me even came to the launch in uh, January 2003. And we stayed very close to Rona and the kids after the accident. And uh, after Asaf was killed, it was really tough on uh, Rona. All the attention and the managing the family, keeping the family optimistic and, uh, and happy and, and not uh, suffering, not falling apart. And there we created jointly the Ramon Foundation, with the intention to unload a big part of the burden of uh, the memory and all the requests that came to her for calling a school after his name, uh, all kinds of uh, educational programs and so forth. So such a team would 
really support her and download a lot of the work that uh, was requested. And, and slowly the foundation grew and defined its objectives in education, leadership, uh, dreaming far and high. Yeah, they're based in the Negev, correct? No, no. They're based in the center. Ramon Foundation is working from uh, Tel Aviv. And from Ilan Ramon to you, now you're uh, you in line to be the, the second Israeli astronaut. And how that happens? <laughs> so um, every year, there's a memorial for Ilan, yeah. where NASA astronauts come over. It's in the, usually end of January, beginning of February, during the Space Week. There's a Space Week in Israel. Yeah. And, and I stayed in touch through Ramon Foundation, through the Friends of Ilan, astronauts, families, at least once a year we would meet them and they stayed in touch. One of them, Garrett Reisman, he was working in SpaceX on the Dragon, right. the, the spacecraft. And I visited him there maybe three or four years ago. It looked very exciting and remote. And then uh, last year, June last year, he First time that SpaceX sent astronauts to the International Space Station, I called him and congratulated him for the great success. After nine years of flying only through the Russians, he immediately said, well, Eitan, let's fly together. You're next. I said, how is that possible? He said, well, we're opening a, the potential or we're checking the possibility of flying a private astronauts. I immediately said yes. I didn't know yet what it means and what it will take and when it will happen. But I first said yes and then started learning about it. It takes a lot of training, right? Like it's not just sitting in a rocket and going to space, right? You kind of have to go through a process, I assume. Yes, it's a full uh, astronaut training of NASA, four mm-hmm. months, and some preparations before hey, that. Only four months? Yes. I want to do that too. <laughs> you can. It's open for everyone. Anyone can do that. I think I need a few, a few skills that I don't have, but yeah, okay. You're not representing anyone. I mean, initially, if you want to fly, you can fly. Right. Um, I, I chose that if I do this mission, I must fill the, the time with, with work. Like it has to have meaning. It has to mean something for you. It has to be meaningful. I knew it would attract a lot of uh, interest. I, w- I didn't imagine how much uh, the excitement in Israel is tremendous, tremendous. Right. From uh, kindergarten to, to top scientists in universities, in hospitals, all over. Right. And what happened actually is that uh, this private initiative attracted even government entities. Right. So the Space Agency, Ministry of Technology and Science... Ministry of Education, other government entities like hospitals, all are joining. They want to join. They want me to do things for them. And I'm so happy about it. Right. I mean, the, I have the opportunity to the electricity, utility. They're all wow. sending experiments with me. How long will be the mission? 10 days. Well, Jeff Bezos was there 10 minutes. You're going to be there 10 days. Yes. That's amazing. 10 days, so it requires full uh, astronaut training at, in right. Houston, NASA, and in uh, SpaceX. So we have to study the, the rocket and the Dragon and, and the space station, the International Space Station. Right. It, it's kind of interesting because it's known that in the late 60s, during the Apollo project, what it did 
to the United States was not only that they got to the moon and all that, but there was a big influx of interest in science, in astrophysics, in medicine. It creates sort of a chain reaction, right? And hopefully your trip can do that in Israel as well. Like we saw that with Bereshit, with the lunar craft, right? Like all of a sudden you have high schoolers thinking, what is the best place in the moon to land a craft? So hopefully your trip will generate a similar degree of interest, right? And we can capitalize on that. It was already happening for the past year, I would say eight months, industries, private, uh, public, government-owned industries and educational institutes, they are all interested in getting uh, something done on the space mission because for them to send an experiment or proof of concept to space is close to impossible. Right. Or very expensive or very remote. It takes time to to send something on a rocket or into the space station and have an astronaut work on it. So it actually opens the doors to this international space station where Israel is not a part of for all these industries. And if you could take one object to space, one object that represents you, that is dear to you, what would that be? So I received a, a suitcase, which is about uh, 10 inches on uh, 10 inches, you know, very small, and I can only take one and a half kilo of personal things. And we're discussing that. I don't want to disclose that too early, but we're discussing that. Today it was published that this Israeli archaeological yeah. department of the Ministry of Culture, they uh, requested that I take an ancient coin yeah. from year 132. It was the last... Independent Jewish coin, yeah. The one from the Bar Kokhba revolt. Exactly, exactly. And the beauty of that coin, on one side it has the vineyard, on the other side it has the uh, palm tree. Right. And this is so beautiful because when the Jews at that time, they wanted independence, what they saw in front of them is agriculture, a peaceful life. Right. They live on the land, growing their grapes and their dates and just living in peace. It would be a beautiful, a beautiful image for that to see the space. So I will take, uh, you asked me what I will take. I, I won't uh, tell you now because it's not final. But obviously <laughs> I'll take some, uh, something that re- will remind me of my father, my mother and the family, obviously, and the grandkids. And one other object that I already talked about publicly is the World Peace Bell. There's a World Peace Bell that was donated by the Japanese to the United Nations after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. It's now a big bell. It's a 400-kilo bell installed in the gardens of the United Nations in New York. And every International Day of Peace, which is 21 September every year, the Secretary General and the And some schools, they go and they ring the bell and mention the importance of peace. And since then, they they produce several of those, and one is installed also in Lod. So I asked the Japanese to, if I can produce a a small replica of that. A small one. (laughs) It needs to fit in 10 by 10 inches. The good news is that without gravity, it's not going to be so heavy. When you think after your mission, what is the one change that you would want to 
making society? If you have to narrow down to one major change that you want to be your your mark in the Israeli society, what would that be? Obviously, uh, that, that anyone can uh, achieve his dream, I would say, that uh, uh, you should dream high and far in order to uh, challenge yourself and try to reach those Uh, objectives. I didn't dream as a child to become an astronaut, and it's still a dream because I didn't fulfill it yet. But it became a dream uh, when I saw Elon flying, and uh, now it's getting close to being fulfilled. Any dream can do, and, and that's what philanthropy does. And I always say that, but I always make a parallel between the word halom and the word lechlim, you know, a dream and to heal. I think that dreams heal us. Dreams help us transcend the pain and take us to a to a better place in the future. Eitan, thank you so so much. That was amazing. Thanks so much to Eitan Stibe. You can learn more about the Ramon Foundation and Rakia, the second Israeli mission to space at en.ramonfoundation.org.il. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also about guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to tell us. Please write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote with another astronaut, Neil Armstrong, who said the old but still relevant phrase of shoot for the stars, because if you happen to miss, you probably will get to the moon instead. So keep shooting for the stars, keep aiming high, Keep giving and join us next time for What Gives.